I'm here today with Katie Nielsen. How are you, Katie? I'm well. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for coming on. And you're the Chief Education Officer at Voxy, and your specialist subject is language training. Is that right? That's right. Um, my PhD is in second language acquisition, and I've been doing research on how to use technology to make language learning more effective and efficient for adults for the last 20 years. Well, thanks very much for coming on. And we don't actually have anything on language training uh, in this podcast back catalogue. So it's good to have a different take on organizational learning. And one of the reasons I think we don't have it on is it doesn't necessarily occur to people like me who are a generalist in learning and development. I mean, I specialize to some extent in things like leadership development, but language is so specific, so general. It's not something that we think of as much when we think of L&D. That's true. And I often find myself in conversations with people who seem daunted by the prospect of language training because it seems like something that's going to take years and years and years. And it's hard for trainers to see how relevant it can be immediately to their uh, employees. Yeah, especially in English language countries where we tend to sort of assume everybody just speaks English anyway. Exactly. And in reality, they don't. And we use English to communicate in global uh, companies all over the world. So even in English language countries, we'll have employees worldwide who are uh, needing to talk to headquarters, who need to communicate with their employees and colleagues all over the world. So a little bit of English language training can go a long way. Yeah, it's, it's not something that, as I say, it's not something a lot of organizations think of. I mean, I'm British, as you know, and, and in the UK, it's a fairly monolingual country in most parts of the country anyway. Um, but I'm based overseas, so language training is something that I see quite a lot of. Even in the UK, though, would, you, would language training be something that a, a company would invest in for employees who are non-native speakers, who are refugees, who are more recent immigrants, who have jobs that don't necessarily require lots of language skills, but then require language training for promotion and advancement? Is that something that you see much of in the UK? It's not something I personally have seen, but that, I, as I say, I'm not based in the UK, so I, can't, I wouldn't necessarily take that to mean much. It may, okay. it may, it may happen, but I... I don't know. It's it's not something that I see a lot a lot of in the UK, but it is something that I see a lot of overseas because, as I say, I'm based over in Spain, so we do see it a lot more here. Where Spanish right. Spanish language skills are obviously important here, and English language skills for Spanish people is big business. Yes, that's true, and it's true all over the world because in order to compete in a global market, you need to have people who can speak English for better or worse. English has become the language of global commerce, and so we can't do business with other countries if we can't speak English. So is most of your work teaching people English that aren't native English speakers, or is it teaching English speakers something else? So most of my work at Voxy, all of my work at Voxy is teaching English to non-native speakers, but my research and the work that I've done throughout my career has been teaching people other languages, teaching people English, trying to figure out how to solve uh, the problem of language being a barrier to communication and advancement. So it's not language specific, though the work I do now is, if that makes sense. But the research right. and the, the, um, the, what we know about how language learning works is the same no matter what languages you're learning. Right. And we're going to talk about that uh, in a moment. We're going to talk about the science of language learning. But before we do that, I'm, I'm coming at this, as I said, from a British person. We don't see a lot of this. Perhaps we're a bit sceptical. There's much value in it. So first of all, let's talk about the ROI of language training. I can g- give you a couple of examples. So yeah, go on. One, one example comes from um, a, a Brazilian company that needed to have its employees learn English because they used English all the time at work and they didn't speak it. And so we 
did a big project with them, taught English to many employees, and we surveyed them afterwards to find out both from the employees themselves and from the managers of those employees if the English training had made a difference. And 76%, and this was a group of 500, so 76% of the respondents said that they saved work time due to proficiency improvements. And the average amount of time saved per week was two hours. So we did a very needs-based English program for them, giving them the English they needed to do their jobs. And they could see directly that doing so helped them get more work done and made their jobs more, made their work life more productive and efficient. So that's one example of how you can measure the ROI of language learning, which I think that's a really nice way to measure it because it's very clear to people investing in language training that it saves time. And when you interview stakeholders, both managers and employees, they'll agree that it saves time. I wouldn't have really thought of it that way either, that it's it's making you more efficient. I guess that communication is more efficient, as you say, and there are fewer mistakes. Exactly. And you spend less time taking... I mean, I do work in three languages myself. I, I speak Spanish fluently, but I also do a lot of work in Portuguese. And when I get an email in Portuguese, I have to Google translate it, read it three times, make sure I really understand it. And the better my Portuguese gets, the more I see personally that uh, I'm saving time and doing a better job. Yeah. And, and I guess people just will collaborate better. Yes. Whereas they might not have bothered collaborating before, or that collaboration that- would have been a lot more superficial. Exactly. And that's something, I mean, that, that's something that we hear from our learners too, is that I'm better able to speak to colleagues or I'm better able to speak to clients or I understand my boss, like very specific things that help intercultural and workplace-wide communication. And, and the, the numbers that you said there were around efficiencies in the sense of two hours a week and stuff. Is yes. there any tracking of how people feel, like maybe retention, something like that? Are people more likely to feel engaged with that employer and therefore more likely to stick around? I think that's true. But another really good example, it's it's U.S. centric, but it's um, a good example of how language training can help retention is that this is one specific example. There's an employer that we work with in Maine, Maine Health. And the last I heard, they needed to uh, hire 1,900 employees this year, the largest employer in the state of Maine. And they're unable to find employees to fill all those roles. And they have employees who are kept from advancement because of English language skills. So, for example, the environmental services staff, many of whom have been there for years, who are employees who they would like to be able to promote, can't get promoted because they don't have the English skills they need for promotion. So they're investing in English training for their employees to then send them out for further training so that they can promote from within. So... It will help with retention, but it also helps fill jobs that uh, they're having difficulty recruiting for. Well, in a sense, yeah, that will feed back. There'll be, there'll be a virtuous cycle of that, won't there? Because I, people will feel more valued. People will feel invested. Well, they are literally more valued and invested in. Exactly. That, that just has collateral benefits, that, you know, dispersing across the organization when people see that. Exactly. And another... Um, employer we're speaking with about helping is somebody who was recently cited by um, they were they had safety inspectors in the workplace who found employees who couldn't communicate in English and couldn't explain what precautions they were taking and they need to find a way to make sure that their employees understand what's required in the workplace and how to safety regulations. So, so that one is an employer who was recently cited for um, safety regulations. In, in, inspectors were at a workplace, and the employees were unable to speak English and unable to communicate 
that they were taking appropriate safety precautions. So they're thinking about investing in specific English training to make sure that their employees understand what's expected of them and can demonstrate that they are in fact complying with these workplace regulations. Is there a case for organizations that are in much more monolingual environments though? Because the, the examples you're citing are there are employees that don't speak English or whatever the dominant language of the organization is. Are there examples where it's more about engaging with customers? Yeah, lots of examples. So the hospitality industry is one where it's much more about engaging with customers. Um, we work with lots of clients that are hotels and hotel chains because they want to be able to have their staff speak with customers in a way that makes the customers feel happier and better taken care of. And what we know about language learning is that a little bit of the right kind of training can go a long way. So if you teach hotel employees, for example, the English they need to survive in the hospitality industry, they can get the they need speaking to guests, speaking to clients, answering their questions to make the entire company perform better. So, so there seems to be sort of a, a convincing case as long as there is some other language involved, whether that's employees or customers. You know, and the other one, yeah, I'm sorry just no, to on. interrupt you, but one of our longest standing customers is actually a Danish company that uses English as the language of communication for a lot of what happens at headquarters just because there, there are manufacturing plants spread all over the world. And they want plant managers in different countries who don't necessarily need to speak English or Danish to get their jobs done to be able to communicate with the wider team. And the whole point of that was this 2020 strategy uh, vision to have the company be more cohesive. So that's an example of where a monolingual, uh, an employer in a monolingual country might want to be able to have employees speak with each other more. And it's about collaboration and communication. Yeah, I mean, that you you do see a lot of that English being used as that kind of middle language. I mean, I I see that when I travel around a lot of times where two non-English speaking people will yes. communicate, oh, sorry, I, I don't mean that, I mean two, not, two not non-native English-speaking peoples will communicate in English. I always find that really interesting to watch and observe how they communicate. And that, that's actually something that makes sense to teach as a separate skill. So one of the things that we do is offer group classes to all of our learners from all over the world on all different time zones, all different first languages. And they'll go and take a class on job interviews or a class on politics or world news or whatever. They can choose all of the topics themselves. But one of the pieces of feedback we get all the time is they love being in an environment where what they're speaking is global English. They're speaking English with a non-native speaker from Brazil, from Mexico, from Korea, and they're all in the same class because I'm not going to speak English the same way as a non-native speaker from a different country. And it's good to practice with all the different world Englishes. If if I'm if you've convinced me that this is worth investing in, uh, just play devil's advocate for a moment. Why wouldn't I just do some online thing like Rosetta Stone or one of those things where you can just get an app on people's phone and just make them do that? Why why would I have the bother, the hassle of going through an organisation like yours? Because those uh, one size fits all approaches don't work for two reasons. One reason is that learning a language is learning a skill, and learning any skill requires individualized, personalized practice. And it requires that learners actually do something. So by integrating live instruction and group classes and one-on-one classes with teachers into a self-study program that's tailored to learners' needs, we can actually keep them engaged in the program and make a difference. 
But if we start out by saying everybody needs to learn Apple and banana and book an airplane first, and once they can match flashcards, then they can go on and then they can learn whatever comes in chapter two. First of all, we lose them because in all adult education, if adults aren't interested, they don't pay attention. And if they don't pay attention, they don't learn. When you're teaching something as complicated as a new language, they really need to be engaged in the material or you're just wasting their time. So there's that piece. And then the other piece is the interactivity and the practice. Learners need to do something with the language. So like our writing classes involve four or five adults coming together, working on a piece of writing together. And that piece of writing is something that they need for the workplace. It's a writing an email about a, a staff announcement or writing a summary, a set of summary notes after a meeting or some piece of real content. And they get feedback on the writing in real time from teachers rather than using sort of the same old um, scripted content that you find in most traditional approaches. Yeah, I mean, I was just I was just playing devil's advocate there because I have tried to learn a language using one of those online things, and I just got nowhere with it. It doesn't work. It certainly didn't work in my case. I can tell you that much. Um, <laughs> one of the other things about language learning is that there are two pieces. You can teach somebody about how a language works, but then what they've learned are a bunch of grammar rules, and they don't know how to use them. It's like any other skill. If I wanted to teach you how to ride a bike and I had you read a book about riding a bike and then I gave you a lecture about where you put your foot on the left pedal and physics and when you lean into a turn and what to do, all that time would be wasted because the minute you picked up a bike, you would have to figure out how to ride it. And it's the same thing with the language. Like the minute I land in a new country, I go stand behind all the people who are saying something to somebody who has coffee and I listen to what they say and then I say it because I want someone to give me a cup of coffee too. And that's not how those traditional programs work. And, and you made a good point as well. You said about if, if we all teach everyone apple, banana, etc. I mean, when you do forget those and it's such generic content, you know, this week we're doing fruit or whatever. Exactly. You forget, if you're not using them, you will forget them. Um, right. And that's not how one approaches life thematically. Like no, this week I, I will only be interacting with fruit. Exactly. You know, it and, doesn't happen. Uh, it doesn't happen. And also, if you need to interact with fruit and you're in a different country, you don't even need to be able to talk. You can go into a market and point at the fruit you want. Or you could pick up the fruit and take it to somebody. Like Those are problems that are easily tractable without needing to have completed a fruit unit six months ago. <laughs> but but yeah. you could, if you, if you really want to use, for example, the, if, we'll use the example of English. If you want to be able to use English for work, you want to read... Uh, a briefing document in your field on something that's interesting to you in English. You'll have the context to understand the vocabulary. It will be meaningful. You will see right away how you can use it. And then you pay attention. Like adults are terrible at learning unless we under, unless we want to. Yeah. There was, there was a very good uh, Eddie Izzard sketch where he, he could, the only French he could remember from school was the monkeys in the tree. So in order to make use of it, he had to actually take a monkey with him to France and put it into a tree. <laughs> It just, it's, it's, ridiculous. A great, it's a great example of those kind of entirely useless phrases that you, you desperately want to use because they stick in your head so you have to engineer the circumstances to make them useful but you can't ask for a cup of coffee or whatever exactly it makes no sense and so i mean we need to radically rethink how we teach languages in general and spend less time teaching people about them and more time giving them things to do with them um but especially when you're thinking about workplace language learning it makes sense to not use those traditional paradigms at all and do a needs analysis like why am I teaching my employees a language? What are they going to do with it? How is it going to help them? How is it going to help me? 
And then what do they need to learn? And then teach them that. And just that first simple step goes a long way towards making workplace language learning something that's attainable and useful with outcomes that are measurable. Do you have any, I mean, you mentioned that you touched on this already, this idea of working together. Do you tend to favor social groups learning or individual one-to-one? It, that honestly depends on the uh, learners. There are so many individual difference variables that interact with the psycholinguistic processes that underpin second language acquisition that some people are more comfortable working one-on-one with a trainer and some people like to work in small groups. So uh, in general, I would say a mix of those things probably makes the most sense. Sometime working on your own, watching videos and reading articles and uh, listening to things in the language you're learning with strategic pauses for comprehension questions and a place for you to review the vocabulary you've learned and then a time for you to actually test what you've learned in a interactive setting because input alone is not enough and you know you can listen and listen and listen and get very good at listening but until you're pushed to actually produce the language you there are going to be gaps in your competence it's a different skill yeah oh absolutely And you think you know more than you do usually because you can figure out a lot of things from context and from um, making educated guesses. And until you're called upon to actually say the words to get somebody to do something that you want them to do, uh, you're not really it's 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 like like any skill you have to practice. Yeah, that's particularly acute, though, in languages. It is true of anything. You've got to be able to produce it. We can we can read something and recognize it. And as you can say, you can guess to, to some degree. When you actually have to produce it, that's when you really find out what you know. Exactly. You've got the blank page or you've got the, the person staring at you going, you know, what do you want then? <laughs> that's when you really find out if you know what, know your stuff. Right. And that, that moment is usually something that then drives the language learner. When they notice gaps in their own competence, then they know what they need to figure out in order to do better. It's like anything else. When you start to realize what you need to know, then you go back and figure that piece out. You said then that there's no particular pattern towards whether it's always better to go in one-to-one or always better to work socially. It really just depends on the learner, depends on the different levels of the groups. and, and Yes, and, and the task at hand. It, it depends upon what's happening. Like if you are a, an intermediate language speaker and you have to give a speech and you want to make sure that there are some turns of phrase that you get right because you don't want to confuse your audience, that's a great time to work one-on-one with a trainer and practice the bits of your speech that you're worried about so that you can get really targeted feedback on what you're going to say. But if you know that you're going to be traveling overseas because you're going to be uh, meeting with other colleagues at your same level and you're going to have to make small talk and you're going to have to talk about what's happening um, internally in the workplace, then a small group makes sense because One of the nice things about small group language instruction is that you get the benefit of speaking to other people, but then listening to other people speak to each other, which is a totally different thing that doesn't happen in a one-on-one lesson. That's why I was, I mean, in in lots of other learning development, we would find that interaction to be in itself valuable, irrespective of any kind of input from, from the lead facilitator. Yes, it's invaluable. And the other thing with language learning, because feedback is so important for language learners, and there are so many different kinds. And what the research suggests is that implicit feedback is the best kind because it doesn't interrupt the flow of conversation. You aren't distracted from what it is you're trying to do, being told that, you know, S, your verb is missing an S. Um, And so that implicit feedback often takes the form of recasts, where I'll say something like, The language learner says something like, yesterday I went to the store, and then the teacher says, yes, yesterday you went to the store. 
And as the person speaking, I might not even notice that that correction was made, but the other participants in the group might be able to notice that. They'll hear the difference between went it and went, and they won't like have this light bulb necessarily go off then, but it will eventually work to help them understand the difference. Is that what you said? I, I missed that. Oh. <laughs> As a fluent English speaker, I, I know I completely missed it. So oh, yeah. I, I will listen back on the recording. <laughs> but, um, but it's, it's, but that, it's a good point though because when you see other people being corrected as you say or just how they express themselves um, it, you you learn from all angles exactly which is why a mix of training uh, is probably best and I think you made a really interesting point about the fact that the context so if you are actually specifically looking to prepare a speech then it might be worth dipping out of that social group into a one-to-one and then coming back into the social group for more general development or something Exactly. That's an interesting point as well. So it's not it's not it's not just one size fits all. Well, I'm saying that completely the wrong way around. What I mean is it's not one size fits me. It's me plus context. It it can vary. 100% it varies. And I think with all training and all learning, it makes sense to think about what do I need this person to be able to do and then what is the best way to teach that person? Because there're going to be things about you know the the extent to which a person is comfortable making mistakes. That plays a huge role in language learning. Because when you go to speak a new language, you can't say anything and you feel like a big dummy. And some people are a lot more comfortable feeling like that than others. And if you want to know the, the meaning of every word before you say it and you want to feel very comfortable, you might not want to be in a group session where you're making lots of mistakes. I guess that's exacerbated potentially by hierarchy as well. If somebody's yes. in a senior position, they may be a little bit more concerned by that. As, as you can tell from that garbled sentence I just said previously, I'm quite comfortable making quite public errors. <laughs> <laughs> Probably already thinking this guy needs English language training. <laughs> Not at all. I mean, anyone who's willing to go off the cuff and have a conversation that's recorded is willing to make errors. There's no way around it. Um, but you see it when you teach language classes. There'll be people who volunteer over and over again, even at the beginning when they are getting everything wrong and they just don't care. It's like learning any new skill. Some people are fine with going and like you know getting on a bicycle and falling off and making a big mess of things or trying to cook without a recipe and other people want to make sure that they understand every step and get better and they don't want to make mistakes and it's impossible to speak a language without making mistakes but you can set things up so that people are more comfortable based on um what their inclination is like but based i mean i just butchered the english language there too i don't even know if you can have a say what their inclination is like but based on their inclinations yeah, well, I, that was kind of you to also make a mistake to make me feel better. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I'm quite uncomfortable with that. I don't particularly like looking um, stupid in public. So I, it, and it does hold me back. I have to force myself to make mistakes when I'm speaking Spanish. Um, I do too. I, and I, ha- I really had to get over it the first time I lived in a Spanish-speaking country because I'd studied Spanish for so many years. And I knew if I thought about it long enough, I would know what I was supposed to say. And I was really uncomfortable with asking questions and pointing at things. And this. I mean, because you don't learn the words for ordering thinly sliced turkey in a deli when you study Spanish in college. No, and I found myself uh, avoiding certain, saying certain things that I wanted to express, but I would deliberately avoid them because I knew I wasn't confident with some verb tense or whatever or some vocabulary. Exactly. I've got to the point now where I deliberately force myself through and sometimes even pause and say to somebody, am I saying that right? 
But and that's so good. That's the only way you're going to get to become sort of perfect in your second language is to get that feedback all the way through because you hit an, what they call an intermediate plateau where you can say most things and you can use circumlocution to talk your way around situations. So you aren't, you're beating around the bush um, and not saying exactly what you mean, but you aren't making any mistakes. It's like challenging yourself in any sport. Like you can learn to ski and be a quite competent intermediate skier and not want to become any better because you don't want to push yourself to, you know, potentially break your neck going down a harder slope. Yeah, I'm probably better at speaking Spanish than I am skiing. That's for sure. <laughs> I, I, mean, just uh... used, I just used the skiing reference because I just came back from a week holiday with my uh, son's skiing in Maine where my younger son told me that he thinks he's better than I am now because I'm so much slower than he is on the hardest slopes. And I told him uh, he was he was lucky that his old mom was still willing to ski with him on the hard slopes. I'm sure a lot of people would 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 get that uh, reference. Um, it's, it's skiing something that I've managed to avoid this far, and I think I'll keep keep. To oh that. yeah, you 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 probably should keep to that actually, <laughs> especially if you don't like making mistakes. No, I hate making mistakes. But as I said, I, I mean, just on the language point, it's something that I have absolutely had to force myself to do, and and also do in front of other people, even though I quite often in a more senior position in my organization still got to just kind of push through it and go for it and it's it goes all against the grain but it's it's definitely the thing to do it is and that's what we have to do when we're teaching people languages is put them in real situations and make them get the practice that's going to help them and that practice is going to be uncomfortable because learning to do any hard thing is you necessarily get into a position where you're uncomfortable or else you just stay where you are and i guess it's worth having this kind of conversation with people so that they're aware that it's okay to feel uncomfortable and it's okay to feel like you don't want to have that public error where you say the verb wrong or whatever. I think it's huge. But you've got to get over it. Yes, I think it's incredibly important. And it's actually something that we do all, we need to do all the time with what we call zero beginners. The ones who are coming in and don't know anything. Like they need to understand that learning a language isn't like learning something else where you learn a and then B and then C and then it makes sense that you're going to hear if you're if you're using real language people are going to say lots of things to you that you won't understand and you have to practice listening so that you can understand more and more and more and there's no way around feeling like you don't know what's happening. I, I sometimes use the parallel of it's like learning to drive a manual transmission when you've driven an automatic car your whole life like you know how to drive but then you get into a car and it's doesn't behave the way you want it to when you go to change gears you can't even start it it starts shaking and bucking and the engine seizes up and you feel terrible because you are an expert at driving you're just not an expert at driving that kind of car and fundamentally language is a tool we use to communicate and we use it fluently without thinking completely automatically when it's our first language when you go to speak your second language it's you have to think about it you need to try to find the words in your memory and string them together remember the verb tenses and remember how to say the the thing that you heard last week and it's it's much more cognitively taxing and you feel very uncomfortable and just taking 10 minutes to make sure that the people who are learning understand that goes a long way to making them be more willing to be uncomfortable i, I completely agree that having that kind of conversation i just think is so important uh, it, just in terms of preparing the person mentally for the what they're going to have to do in order to be able to learn. And it, they, I don't think we do that enough. I mean, may, maybe you do. A, a, I should, probably shouldn't say we, but I don't see that enough, that kind of I suppose, meta conversation where you talk about the process of learning. I don't think we do that enough in general with learning, and I definitely don't think we do that enough with language learning. Because people will go to a language class and expect to get a list of words and learn the words and get a translation and have everything be partially in their mother tongue and partially in the language they're learning. And that just isn't what works. 
You know, if, if you understand everything that's happening in your first language class, then you aren't learning anything. Well, this, this segues us in quite nicely to the last thing we wanted to talk about, which is around the science of language learning. Uh, yes, and, I, and I've sort of started at that a little bit by saying learning a language is learning a skill, and learning a skill requires practice. I mean, that's sort of the most fundamental thing. And there have been, there's been decades and decades of research on how to help people learn languages, applied linguistics, second language acquisition. These are all well-developed fields with lots and lots of research on how to set people up for success. It's just that very little of that research ever makes it way into language classrooms, which is why you have people learning to say in French, the monkeys in the tree and not learning how to do anything useful. Um, because we know that it's individualized, that people learn languages best when what they're doing is relevant to their needs, when they can see right away how to use it, when they get the opportunity to both take an in input, input is fundamental for language learning. So they need to read and they need to listen. They need to watch people doing things with the languages they're learning. And then they need the opportunity to produce the language themselves. And they need the chance to do that by themselves, but they also need to interact with other people and they need feedback on all of that. And without those four things, input, output, interaction, and feedback, you can't have language learning take place. And that's sort of a, a baseline if you're evaluating whether or not a language program you're considering will work is does it offer the opportunity for all those four things? So when you're, when you're looking at designing a language program, those are the four things that you are bearing in mind? Yes. Input, input output. Interaction. And interaction feedback. and feedback. That Can you give an example of the kind of things that you would be doing in, in a language program in each of those four categories? Sure. For, let's say for a workplace language program, input would be examples of the language that your learners need to be able to produce. So if, if it's a, let's say it's an international company that has both trade materials, but also um, workplace internal documents that are written in the language that you're offering, you would have those serve as the input. So people would actually read and listen to recordings of speeches that were given by the company executives. That would all be examples of input. And then output would be the chance to create those materials themselves. So does the employee need to write emails in the target language? Do they need to be able to have conversations in the target language? The language program needs to be set up so that they can get practice writing those emails or having those conversations in the language they're working on. They need the opportunity to have those conversations with another person so that they get the interaction. And they need somebody giving them feedback on how their language is developing. So you can't just write an email and not find out what is right or wrong in it. You need to write the email and then you need to understand where you have not successfully communicated your point, where you need to um, improve your grammar, your, your punctuation, if those are things that are important to your job. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It, and it is making sure the program has all of those four elements. That, that's... And then making sure that there's some way to document efficacy. So we haven't really talked about this, but probably the most important thing for a workplace language learning program to do is measure results. You want to make sure that learners have improved their proficiency in the language, but also that they can do their jobs in the language. So measuring that by serving the employees and serving the trainers, uh, giving them a proficiency assessment, evaluating how their language skills have improved, those all need to be built into any sort of workplace language program or it's not worth doing it. And I guess that's slightly easier to do in the case of language because it's a harder skill where there's right and wrong answers. Exactly. I guess it's going to be slightly easier than it would be in the in, in some of the other skills that we might be training people on. Leadership skills are probably more difficult. I mean, you can measure leadership skills by 
you know, asking people's direct reports and by having people self-assess. And, and you can do those things too with language. But if we have employees who need to learn English to talk to clients, we can measure whether or not we get fewer client complaints that they're unable to talk to employees. There are very concrete ways of measuring whether or not the language training has worked. If you start out by a needs assessment and figuring out who needs the language, what language is it, and why do they need it? I mean, th- this is your big area of research. This is where you're where you're doing your PhD. This is your professional life. Yes. Is that is that so? Can, can you give us any kind of you know sneaky insights and prediction for the future about what are going to be the big developments in language training in the future? I think that we are going. The world is becoming increasingly connected. Even this Skype call that we're having today, the sound quality of this five years ago would have been so much worse. We wouldn't have been able to count on it to record something the way we can now. People use um, technology for despite the fact that we've had to re-record three bits. <laughs> but only three. Five years ago, we would have had to re-record like at least yeah. fifteen. Although that is hidden from the listener because I patiently edited it out. (laughs) But, you know, video chat today is different from it was five years ago. People can pop into a FaceTime call. And so the fact that the world is becoming increasingly connected and we have more and more data about what people are doing with languages, being able to use that to make training more efficient is where things are going to go. It is no secret that language learning works best when it's personalized and that we can use the technology that we have to help make it more personalized, it's going to lead to more people getting better language training. So what advice would you give um, people that were going to set up a, a workplace language program? I would say that people are often daunted at the prospect of setting up a workplace language program because from personal experience, they feel that learning a language is something that takes years and years and years and often doesn't yield results. And so starting with a needs I'm nodding. Assess- you can't see it, but I'm nodding. Starting with a needs assessment and making sure that the program is designed to help employees with specific needs around language learning and that you can document the effectiveness by measuring whether or not employees are able to accomplish their work tasks in the language they're learning will go a long way towards setting up a program that's manageable and effective and where you can very easily determine whether or not it's working. What's surprising in in a sense about that answer is that it's not surprising. Um, I, it, we could have almost been talking about any other skill. Yes, but it often and that's gets- kind of demystifies it in a sense because, like you just said, I would be thinking, "Oh, there's no way this is too complicated." I remember my French lessons at school, but exactly. actually, the advice you're giving is is pretty consistent with any other skill acquisition. It, it really is. And that's why I think when people ask about how language learning works, the first thing I say is it's just like any other skill, which means it's going to seem hard at first. We need to teach you the right thing. We need to give you lots of practice and it works. We see over and over and over again that approaching language training this way works. Okay, well, thanks very much for that. And there was one thought I had as well. Just I live in a in an environment where Spanish is not my direct, my first language. My Spanish is okay, but it's not brilliant. I quite often make mistakes that are where I come across far more rude than I intend just because it's the only way I can say it and people come to me in English and I think bloody hell that's a bit harsh because again they just don't have that kind of soft touch with the language so they they we just drop these clangers where we accidentally are kind of offending each other for no intention but it's just that lack of just not having quite the skill to use the language delicately so I, I guess there's that as well, isn't it? There's that kind of cultural use of the language. 
There is. And the length, uh, having courses in intercultural communication goes a long way towards helping that. But so does just telling somebody up front, listen, Spanish is not my first language. I don't mean to offend you. I'm, I may say some things that come across as offensive and that's not how I mean them. Like, like we were saying before, when you give people the sort of meta information about what their training is going to be like, I think taking a step back and doing that with all interactions could be really helpful. Yeah, I do that to people in English as well. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to be offensive. So it's just the way I am. I mean, I think you sometimes see that with British English and American English. I, my, I um, got my master's in the UK and I remember noticing that we, we have different ways of communicating the same things that would come across very rude in one culture to the other culture. Yeah, I, I remember that when I lived in the States, I had to really tone down my sarcastic cynicism, <laughs> which is a very British humorous thing. Yeah, it didn't, didn't land quite as well as I'd hoped. I, I still sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh my God, did I really say that? <laughs> uh, anyway, that's just what happens when you try to talk to people from other countries. And what we should all do is give give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I, I've matured since then, so I, I control it better. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Katie, it's been really interesting. And like I said, it's kind of demystified an area that, as I said at the beginning, I haven't given that much attention to and kind of felt it was a different field. But a lot of what you're saying is showing that isn't the case. It's actually very similar to a lot of other learning and development. A lot of the skills, a lot of the thinking that we need to do is very similar. I think so. And I really appreciate the chance to be on your show. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you.